0: Hello fellow Kentuckians and other friends, and welcome to a new edition of My Old Kentucky Podcast. My name is Robert Connie, and joining me, as always, is Jasmine Smith. Jasmine, how are you today?
1: doing well robert how are you
0: you know i'm okay it's another tuesday it's no longer monday um they're never that good of weeks when the kentucky legislators you know it's just like you you know that's true it's just you can't have a good week if you're paying attention to the kentucky legislature and we are uh we have lots of stuff to talk about related to the kentucky legislature um probably the biggest piece of news is that hb5 the safer kentucky criminal justice criminal justice bill, uh, has passed the house and is on its way to the Senate. So we're going to be talking about that. And in addition to talking about that, we have Kaylee Raymer on the podcast as our guest in the second half of the show. And she's going to be talking to us quite a bit about that bill as well. So she's going to be talking about HB five. She talked to us a little bit about the other things that KY policy is doing. That's who she's with. She's with KY policy and she talked to us just kind of about her job there. So definitely stay tuned for that part of the show. But uh, for this part, we are going to be talking just briefly about the passage of HB5, what's going on there. Uh, I'm going to be talking about the school choice constitutional amendment, which there has been a second bill filed that would be the constitutional amendment about school choice. So we'll talk about that. And then there's a couple of other smaller stories. Jasmine has a story about voter ID that's making its way through the legislature in a Senate bill. There have been some leadership changes at the Kentucky Democratic Party that I wanted to talk about. And then uh, there's also a short update about Anthony P. Argentini, the Louisville Metro Council member who um, is going to be facing an expulsion trial and any, a, a couple of updates about that. So without any further ado, Jasmine, tell us what we need to know about HB 5.
1: All right. So House Bill 5, which is called the Safer Kentucky Act, but Josie Raymond has now dubbed it the Suffer Kentucky Act. I think is more accurate. Absolutely. That passed the house last week. It passed with an 11-page floor amendment, which we are going to talk about a little bit later with our guest, and she is going to explain what's in it. But it includes a couple small improvements, but also a lot of harsher language. Um, so th- the bad may outweigh the good there. There was a motion... There was a vote on a motion to divide the bill um, because there's so many different parts of it. That motion failed, um, as did a motion to lay the bill on the table. But the bill ultimately passed 74 to 22. So Republicans Stephen Doan, Savannah Maddox and Felicia Rayburn voted against it. Those are three Republicans who are kind of part of the Liberty Caucus with um, Steve Doan and Savannah Maddox being from Northern Kentucky and Felicia Rayburn and Savannah Maddox. of so, you know, they're usually lock and step on, on most issues. Uh, Democrat Ashley Tackett Lafferty, who's our, our lone Eastern Kentucky Democrat um, who, who does often vote with Republicans um, on, on some things like this. She voted for the bill. Um, so now it, it heads to the Senate. Um, and so, You know, I think what we're going to be looking for there is, you know, what committee does it get assigned to in the Senate? Um, But I I believe that leadership is all um, Senate leadership is all supportive of the bill and wants it to pass. Um, And so that's where we are now with House Bill five.
0: Yeah, we are going to get this bill passed in some form or fashion the optimist in me wants to think that the Senate will do some stuff to clean up some of the more egregious pieces of it. I don't have any large hopes that some of the really egregious stuff, like the three strikes provision or the, the fentanyl provision or the street, the street camping, you know, I, I don't have a lot of hope that there will be big changes around that, but I do have some hope that, you know, especially if it goes to the judiciary committee in the Senate where Whitney Westerfield is the chair and has typically been, you know, a lot better on criminal justice, issues than a lot of the other republicans in the senate um it it could be cleaned up quite a bit um and you know that could create some kind of showdown with the house and and, you know we don't know what could happen at that point so you know it's not over for for sb 150 or sorry sb 150
1: (laughs) hb5 uh, <laughs> whatever they're both bad whatever. they're both real bad
0: <laughs> <laughs> for hb5 uh but it is uh it is definitely cruising towards passage it's just the form in which it takes is something that that will be you know has yet to be determined um like like jasmine said we're going to be talking about this quite a bit with kaylee Raymer in the second half of the show so we'll leave it there for that one Um, Okay, I want to talk a little bit about the another school choice bill that's making its way through the legislature. So we talked before about how you know, the first five bills in the legislative session, so HB one, two, three, four, and five are typically like the highest priority bills for the chamber. And HB one is always the budget. So HB two, which seems to Reason is the highest priority budget for the the Republican House after the budget um, was filed last week, and it is filed by Suzanne Miles, and she's a member of Republican leadership, and it is a school choice constitutional amendment. So what would this bill do? HB 2 is a constitutional amendment to nullify the Supreme Court ruling, which made a voucher or charter school system in Kentucky illegal. And you might remember that we talked about HB 208 a few weeks back, and that is a a similar bill. It's a different constitutional amendment, which would accomplish most of the same things. However, if you ask me, HB 2 is even more right-wing than hb 208 and and what's the difference so hb 208 was filed by josh calloway calloway is among the most right-wing legislators in frankfurt but you know in what ways is he right-wing i would say probably the ways that he's the most right-wing are like being very very anti-trans especially anti-trans kids and uh, anti-lgbtq he was
1: yeah like the most socially mm -hmm. right-wing
0: yeah um he he though is not a big fan or sorry uh the republican leadership in the house are not the biggest josh Callaway fans because um he does work very hard to get his way on bills he threw a lot of wrenches into the sb 150 uh you know passage last year and he did a bunch of other things too especially around their compromise around gray machines uh the the, the slot machines that are now legal in Kentucky, and you know he's very socially conservative, and gambling is a big piece of that. So at the end of the last year's session, he actually had two committees stripped away from him, so they did not appreciate the things that he was doing. So it was a little surprising to me that his bill was the one that we were talking about regarding a constitutional amendment. We knew that this was going to be a high priority for Republicans, so it was slightly surprising to me that one of the black sheep in their caucuses was carrying the bills. And, and sure enough, it's been superseded here by HB2. In the meantime, HB2 did pick up 30 co-sponsors, um, but I'm not surprised to see HB2, a much higher numbered bill um, with some major members of House leadership, uh, I am not surprised to see this bill take its place. So in what ways are HB2 and HB208 different? So I'm going to read a part of HB208. Quote, this educational... This constitution shall not prevent nor require a further referendum for any provision for the educational cost of students outside of the system of common schools for parents of limited financial means, as determined by law, so long as no such funds are taken directly from the common school fund, unquote. So that's more words than is in HB 2. And it seemingly restricts the voucher or charter system to poorer students. You know, it has that limited financial means language in there, although it does nothing to kind of flesh out what that means, to say what that would mean. Um, and, and and so that could get a little confusing. HB2 is a lot more straightforward. I'm going to read all of HB2 except for the numbers part. So, quote, notwithstanding the provisions of sections, a bunch of sections, uh, the General Assembly may provide... financial support for the education of students outside of the system of common schools. The General Assembly may exercise this authority by law in particular places as it deems proper, So that basically means that the system is available and the state could uh, pay private school tuitions for anybody that they wanted to. It's it's a much cleaner bill. It's a much cleaner uh, type of constitutional amendment um, that would raise fewer challenges. Uh, in addition, HB 208 has that additional uh, has that guardrail in it that says the funds cannot come directly from the common school fund. Um, so, you know, it seems like HB 208, Josh Calloway's bill is trying to like rein in some of the excesses of a charter school bill, trying to make it a little bit more palatable to people who might be more moderate, might be concerned about what a charter school system would do to damage their public schools. But it's so easy to, to you know, if they put something in place there would be very direct challenges around the language. You know, this does, in fact, take money from the common school system. This, uh, this is for parents of non-limited financial means. You know, there would be just be challenges to everything around those provisions. And just by making the constitutional amendment extremely broad, that means it's cleaner. It gives the legislature a lot more power to do things that they might want to do. So I think that's why they filed HB2 over, uh, HB two over HB two hundred eight. What does it mean? These things do have to be uh, passed by the, the 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 people. They would go on to the ballot in order to be approved by a constitutional amendment. Does this matter? Does this language change matter? We'll never know because just one of these are going to go before the people. And I I I am I again I am a little surprised that Republicans are putting such a power behind this. I don't think they have a good chance of getting this passed. By the voters, I you know I've said that before. I I'm an optimist. Unfortunately, I don't know why they just keep beating me down in terms of my my positive predictions. But uh, it has been quite a long time, with the exception of maybe Marcy's Law, uh, where we have seen Republicans have a clear victory on a co- like on an amendment that something that isn't super partisan. Um, so, I, it, you know school issues are stuff that I think Democrats kind of are more in the the middle of the Kentucky populace on. I I don't know, um, but they are pushing for it. It is HB2, and that is the bill um, that will start moving soon. Jasmine, do you have anything to say about uh, HB2 or HB208?
1: Just that I appreciate you explaining the differences of them because I didn't know what they were. And I have to say I'm kind of surprised to see that Josh Calloway's was maybe the more like palatable version of it. Not surprised to see that his is the one that's not a priority. It's a
0: little cl- yeah, not the priority, a little clumsier. A little surprising that it may not be quite as right wing. Yeah. Um, yeah, there you go. All right, well, tell us what we need to know about this uh, this voter ID bill, Jasmine.
1: All right, so in 2020, Kentucky passed its first photo ID law. That was Senate Bill 2. We talked about it a lot. We didn't like it. Um, but now Senate Republicans are, are trying to make the photo ID law even more strict by removing student IDs from acceptable forms of ID for voting. And so this bill is sponsored by Adrian Southworth, who, if you listen to our show, you know that she's been part of the election integrity tour. Since 2020, and it is also a legislator who has been like removed from committees, kind of like Josh Calloway, uh, but in the Senate. Um, under the current law, if a voter does not have one of the accepted kinds of primary photo ID, they may sign a form affirming that they're an eligible voter and use a secondary form of ID to vote. And so this bill would also remove credit cards as a secondary form of ID, Um, which I think that's a bad provision too, because if I didn't have my ID on me, the only secondary form I would probably have is probably like a credit or debit card or something. Um, And so that's the other thing that the bill does. Michael Adams, the Secretary of State, who was supportive of Senate Bill 2, the photo ID bill, does not support this bill. And we have some quotes um, from his spokesperson um, that I thought were kind of interesting. Um, First, she expressed worry about the Secretary's ability to defend the voter ID law in court if we continue to restrict it. Um, That makes sense. She also said... As a Republican, Secretary Adams believes his party should be careful not to gratuitous, gratuitously alienate young voters like college students by taking away their ability to use college photo IDs in the absence of any evidence they have been used fraudulently. She also said the General Assembly should not enact any election law sponsored by a legislator who has falsely accused our county clerks of rigging elections. Um, So there's that. And then Adams himself, there's also some quotes of him expressing those concerns about alienating young voters from the Republican Party, Um, talking about how that's, you know, that voter base has been an issue for Republicans already and and we don't need to further alienate them. Um, I, I do think it's interesting that Adrian Southworth is carrying well, it's not surprising that she's carrying a bill like this, um, but she hasn't had a lot of bills pass out of committee, um, but this one is supportive by leadership. Damon Thayer supports it, um, has been vocally supportive of it. He says he he doesn't agree with everything that the Secretary of State says. Um, so it, it passed out of committee 9 to 2, and now it heads to the full Senate. Um, so... We have a stricter voter ID bill on the move.
0: Yeah, this is one that's very interesting to me as to like what's going to happen to it in the future. Because like you mentioned, it is kind of a Republican versus Republican situation. Of course, all the Democrats are opposed to it. But um, will Michael Adams' influence over his party override the ability to get this all the way through the legislature? Um, it could be a bill that what? dies in the Senate, like they don't take it up. But the fact that it's supported by at least one member of the Republican leadership pretty heavily probably indicates that it'll get through the Senate on some yeah. on some form or fashion. That would be my estimation at this point.
1: Yeah, that's what I would guess, too.
0: But what happens to it in the House? Does the fact that Michael Adams is so opposed to it, does it prevent it from, um, you know, getting a committee hearing in the House? Does it prevent it from getting heard on the floor of the House? Does it prompt some sort of amendment that kind of you know, college IDs are legal if they include some something, I don't know, like, there could be some amendment that makes it a little more palatable. I don't know, there's a lot of ways that this could go. Um, It is a little surprising that Adrian Southworth is carrying it. Uh, It gives Republicans a lot of cover in the House to be like, I don't support it, because I think she's a little nuts. Um, And so, you know, there is a chance that this doesn't go all the way, although, you know, nothing good can ever happen. So, seems likely that it'll pass. All right. Uh, Anything else you want to say about the voter ID bill, Jasmine?
1: That's it for now.
0: All right. Switching gears. Talk about the Democratic Party. So there is some change in the leadership of the Kentucky Democratic Party. That's Sebastian Kitchen is stepping down as the executive director. And Morgan Eves is taking over that job. So. Sebastian Kitchen served in his capacity at KDP for more than two years. I was a little surprised that it had been so long when I looked at the, the time period. Before that, he had worked
1: two years. That doesn't. That sounds like a long time to you. For
0: for a job like this one, and you know, I worked I worked with him uh quite a bit, and and I you know I felt like he was there for for longer than that. But yeah, he was or uh, shorter than that. But he was yeah, he was just there for two two years. Uh, but anyways, before he served at KDP, he was with the governor's uh, as a spokesperson. And he'd been a journalist at the Courier Journal and in other places before and had worked for other political campaigns after that. So he took over in the wake of the quadrennial every four years reorganization of the Kentucky Democratic Party as somebody who's very close to Andy Bashir. And he served through the reelection of the governor. And, and this type of staff turnover uh, happens all the time at parties, people don't stay in these kind of jobs for very long periods of time, they are kind of like prove that you can do a good job here and we'll get you a different job somewhere else. And yes, Sebastian kitchen is headed back to the administration as a deputy secretary. So he's going to be a deputy secretary secretary in the tourism cabinet, which is, you know, a nice, a nice little promotion from what he was doing as as spokesperson. So um, that, that's good for him. And I think he did a good job and deserves uh, to move up in, in, you know, the, the structure over there. So who's taking over Morgan Eves? Uh, she is from Richmond and she ran for house there in 2018. She was a guest on the show and she ran and she lost by 27 votes. Uh,
1: it, yeah. And we, we haven't been able to get that seat either.
0: It still hurts because she was so close and she was such a good candidate. I was like, so thrilled. I would have been like, oh like, man. She was going to be so great in the house. She'd be such a great addition to the caucus and lost by 27 votes. She then recruited her dad to run, which I thought was a baller yeah. move. That's like, you know, all right, you don't want me. You want some old white guy have my dad instead. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, you know, it was 2020, not a great year for Democrats. So he, he didn't win that year either. Um, once Andy Beshear was elected, uh, Morgan Eaves did go to work for him in the administration. and worked there for a couple of years and is now in uh, private practice um, where she is a lawyer. Um She's been on the show a bunch of times. She she was here as a guest. Uh, she's guest-hosted one time when you weren't here, Jasmine. So, uh, you know, I'm a big Morgan Eves fan. I, I've really been an admirer of hers, you know, kind of since I, she arrived on the scene, or the first time I really saw her in 2018. She was also a Richmond City Commissioner. I guess I should probably mention that as well. Um, so he, she has been done that. Yeah. You know, uh, I will say the last thing about this is this move was not unexpected. You know, after a big election victory like the democrats had in 23 with with governor Bashir holding onto his his seat you know that this high level staff changes and and you know i i want to just say i really admire the work of sebastian kitchen you know i had the opportunity to work pretty closely with him on a few things and i thought he was you know he was very present he was always there um he was always taking an interest in the things that the democratic party needed to handle and whenever conflicts did arise which as in a political party they arise all the time uh he dealt with them really well i i really appreciated the way you know things did not spiral out of control he handled things uh got everybody back on the same page and got us back working um to making to make progress so you know i think it's going to be tough for morgan eves to live up to sebastian kitchen's legacy but i think she's the person to do it if anybody can it will be her so best of luck to both sebastian kitchen and morgan eves in their new roles um and yeah, that is all I have to say about that. Anything to say about Sebastian or or Morgan there, Jasmine?
1: Just that I think Morgan is also a great choice to be the ED of the party. It, you know, I think it's, it's a really tough job, which I think it's unusual to say that two years is a long time in a job, but I guess being the um, executive director of, of a political party, it, it's it's pretty normal and um, everyone always wants you to be running it differently. I'm sure. Yep. Uh, so <laughs> so um, yeah, congratulations to Sebastian and best of luck to Morgan.
0: Yeah. Well, I guess one other thing to say is, you know, Coleman Elridge, as far as I know is staying on as, as chair. And, and so that will be some, some continuity mm-hmm. um, in the transition. It's not like a whole new team. Taking over. Yeah. 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 All right. Last thing we talk about today, Jasmine, uh, Anthony Piagentini. There's some updates around that. So tell us what we need to know.
1: Yeah, this is kind of a bit of a quick hit, just a little update. So Louisville Metro Council has set a date for Anthony Piagentini's ethics trial. It's set for February 6th. So it's going to start in about a week. And it's heard by the council court, uh, which includes everyone on council except the person charged. So everyone except Piagentini. And they're considering eight charges, so the same six that he was found guilty of by the Ethics Commission, and then added charges of misconduct by failure to disclose and perjury. Um, But uh, the council court, those are like criminal charges, but the council court cannot impose criminal penalties. Piagentini's filed, he filed a motion to dismiss those charges, but they're going to be heard. At least 18 members of the council would have to vote for Piagentini to be removed. If removed, he can appeal to Jefferson Circuit Court, and he's already filed a suit to appeal the Ethics Commission findings. Um, So, just breaking down that vote, there would be 20, that would make 25 voting members of Metro Council. So, seven people could vote against removal, and there are eight voting Republicans. Yeah. So there you go. (laughs) Yeah,
0: And, and, you know, we talked about this quite a bit, but I think I talked about it with when you weren't here. Yeah. Um, And and it is kind of like Democrats would need to peel away, I think, two Republicans. And I felt like there were some, you know, there's there's been some Republicans that are long serving that seem to be like good public servants that might be interested in doing that. But it seems like that this has just become very, very partisan, as is politics and government these days. So it seems unlikely, but uh, but, you know, with the breadth of these charges and just the obviousness with which (laughs) they occurred, I, I, you know, I I just at least hold out hope that somebody at least listen. So I don't know. Um, What do you think, Jasmine? You think he's going to get away with it? I
1: don't know. I'm I'm not super familiar with the Republicans on Metro Council, and so I don't know if there's Cause there's, there's eight and seven people can vote against it. So I think you just need one, right? right.
0: There's one. They just have to peel away one. Yeah. That, that's, yeah, that was my understanding. Yeah. You
1: said two a minute ago. Well, so you I said was...
0: seven could vote against it and that there were eight. So I was, uh, I was Yeah, a that's confused. one. Okay. 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 So seven, if only seven vote against it, he will be convicted.
1: Seven people can vote against removal. And there's eight Republicans. That's what I said.
0: Right. So if they if they lose one, they still have seven. Yeah. So would he get convicted with seven? Yeah. OK, OK. <laughs> That's the question. OK, I thought it was just one, but I got confused looking at looking at what you said. So, all right. Just one would have to come away. But, yeah, I think that there I mean, you know, I, I think about like Kevin Kramer, who's been there forever, you know, like Stuart Benson. Like so there's some people who've been there for like, you know, if, you know, even even like I don't know, like Marilyn Parker seems like a pretty reasonable person. I, I, you know, there's, there's all kinds of people.
1: Yeah. For some reason, Marilyn Parker was the one in my head. I, I don't know why. And then you, you also have like newer Republicans, like, um, Khalil Bechon, um, he, I You know, I don't know, like, where he
0: falls. My understanding and... is that he was recruited by Anthony Piagentini to... Oh, okay. <laughs> and, and some of those... I mean, Anthony Piagentini has taken a strong interest in the Republican Party in, in Louisville, especially as it relates to Metro Council. So a lot of the mm-hmm. newer folks there are very... have very good relationships with him, or at least that's my understanding of that situation. Um, and, yeah, so I... I we'll see. My bet is that he gets away with it. So... We'll see yeah
1: right. I think yeah I think Democrats probably uh needed needed a couple more seats and
0: they yeah they lost Metro I, council I, I for this they, to happen I think it was a net loss of two seats in uh Metro council uh, in 2020. 2022 and yeah mm-hmm. that would have been that would have been the difference so yeah there go. all right anything else you want to say about anything no all right well let's get to our interview with Kaylee Rain.
1: Kaylee Raymer is a policy analyst at the Kentucky Center for Economic Policy. She joined the staff in December 2022, and her work focuses solely on the criminal legal system issues that impact Kentuckians. Previously, Kaylee worked as a public defender and as an eviction defense attorney in Louisville. We invited her on today to talk about House Bill 5 and her work in criminal justice policy. So, Kaylee Raymer, welcome to My Old Kentucky Podcast. Thank you all for
2: having
0: me. Yeah, we're thrilled that you're on here. Uh, You know, um, I guess the first place to start is with what you're doing. So you've been with, uh, well, first of all, do you call it Kentucky policy or KY policy? I don't, I still don't really know what to call it. We
2: call it uh, KY policy.
0: All right. All right. I still call it the Kentucky Center for Economic Policy and they can, they can you come after me that. if they want to. Um, <laughs> tell us a little bit about the work that you're doing there and how you ended up working, uh, doing this kind of work.
2: Sure. So my job looks a little different when the legislature's in session versus when they're not. Um, So at a time like right now where they're in session, it's really focused on what's going on with session. So tracking bills as they're filed and as they move throughout the process, uh, making sure that we're pushing back on bills that are going to increase incarceration in the state, but also supporting and uplifting any reforms that are positive. Um, So that can involve meeting with legislators and community partners, obviously analyzing the bills. We provide a lot of technical and research support to grassroots groups as well, and also publish analyses to help educate the media and other groups. Um, When the legislature is not in session, which is most of the time, there's a lot more free time um, to work on other projects. So, for example, we have a project working on criminal fines and fees in the state. We're still in the information gathering phase of that project, but the ultimate goal is to get some legislation passed that helps reduce the impact of fines and fees on Kentuckians. And then we also have a project um, to commemorate the 10 year anniversary of Senate bill 200, uh, which was a really big juvenile reform that's been like praised uh, nationally. So we're working on interviewing judges, uh, prosecutors, uh, people who work in the juvenile system, the people who filed that bill um, to learn more about it and hope to produce a project on that.
0: Yeah, Jasmine, I know that we've been doing this a long time because we talked about SB200 as a new bill when we first started the show. So uh, it was like, $2, yeah, or something.
1: <laughs> yeah, it, it had already been passed when we started, but like implementation of it was still so new at the time.
0: Um, yeah, Kaylee, so, you know, um, while we're talking a little bit about you getting started doing this work, you talked a little bit about, uh, you know, working with legislators and, you know, we're going to be talking a lot about HB five, uh, coming up here and just kind of what it is and how it impacts us. Um, in terms of like actually doing the work with the legislature, how have you found those conversations? Uh, especially as somebody who may not have had much occasion to like talk to legislators before this, uh, you know, do you feel like everybody has their mind wrapped around this bill in the right way and they're just doing what they're doing even though they know or like how do you, how have you found that process um, in in you know your first legislative session
2: well I think it's difficult <laughs> you have to be strategic with uh, relationships you have with people and I do think that my experience practicing law and peering in front of a judge has really helped shape the way I have certain conversations um, and it also, helps me understand that I think that most people really do believe what they're doing is right. Um, Most people aren't evil doing something that they, you know, think will harm other people. And so going into conversations with that mindset and trying to find some common ground with legislators, you may not um, agree on a bill with is helpful. And also it's so great that we are connected with so many other groups because This group over here may have a better relationship with this legislator because they went to the same high school or or they they were in the same law school class or whatever. So it's not always beneficial for me personally to meet with every person when I can have someone else who knows them better, has more in common with them, take up that meeting.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's a small state. There's a lot of situations like that, I'm sure. Um, okay, so I guess let's talk a little bit about how you ended up doing this, right? So you had been a public defender, and, and that's you know a job where you're providing direct representation to indigent people charged with crimes, uh, and you know this is a little bit more of like policy, which is broader strokes, I guess. So I mean, talk talk to us a little bit about why you decided to make that change and how this work differs from what you were doing before.
2: Yeah, well, I never thought I would be doing policy work. You told me that a couple years ago, I would have thought you were crazy. Um, but the completely like unfiltered answer is that I needed a break from practicing law. When you're representing people in court, you're standing next to them on some of the worst days or maybe the worst day of their life. And that takes its toll on you. And I did that in criminal court, eviction court, family court, and immigration court. And I cared really deeply about everyone I represented and it was hard. And specifically as a public defender, my caseload got to a point where I felt like I wasn't giving my clients the representation that they deserved. And I was working 60, 70 hours a week and it still wasn't enough. And so I knew it was time to, time to get out. And I found this job and I was excited for the opportunity to still work on issues I really cared about, but in a way that allowed me to also take care of myself. So I have a better work-life balance here. And I don't know if, One day I may go back to practicing, but my experience as a public defender in eviction court, um, in family court and all that stuff, it really informs the way in which I see and understand policy. And then also the relationships I was able to build with judges and other people, that's been really helpful because we've been able to easily pull them into conversations or be like, hey, how would this impact your court? Or what are you seeing on this issue where you practice? So it's been really helpful.
1: Yeah, I think something like I always talk about as a public defender was you are so bogged down in your individual caseload. You come in wanting to, you know, change things and change the system, but you're so bogged down that you can't even think about the system on like a, a greater level and and doing policy work gives you a chance to do that and it gives other people in policy and in the legislature with your experience an opportunity to hear from someone who has that practical experience too. Like this isn't just research and data. Here's what has actually happened and what I've seen. And so you bring certainly a unique experience to that, um, which is very cool. Um, But we wanted to talk to you also today because the bill that's probably gotten the most attention this session is house bill five or what the Republicans have deemed the safer Kentucky act and you testified in opposition of the bill and committee. One of the things that it would do is incarcerate more people for a longer period of time. And it, it does that in several different ways. It creates a three strikes law. Um, it would charge sellers of fentanyl with murder for overdose deaths. It would increase fleeing evading penalties, among other provisions. Um, so why wouldn't increased penalties curb crime mates and make people safer?
2: Yeah, well, the short answer is research. So research shows us that increased penalties don't deter violent crime. Um, and we know that almost everyone who goes to prison will return home one day back into our communities. Um, and Kentucky already has really harsh criminal penalties. So bumping them up a a felony class is unlikely to uh, decrease crime rates. Um, If you look at what the General Assembly has done since 2011 at KY Policy, we track this, they passed six times as many laws to increase incarceration or increase penalties versus um, to reduce it. So in short, if more and longer incarceration was the solution to our problems, we would have solved them already. Um,
1: yeah. Yeah. So I, I mentioned some of the things that involve increased penalties in the bill, but it's a huge bill. Um, so could yep. you talk about some of the bills, other prov- provisions that you think would be particularly bad policies for Kentucky? Sure. Yeah. So it is
2: like a 73 page bill. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a lot of things thrown into it. So some other harmful things, um, the bill would create a new crime called street camping. Um, It would ban street camping, which basically makes it a criminal offense for someone to sleep outside in a public place. Um, This is problematic because we have 50 counties in the state that don't even have homeless shelters, so there's no option for people to go anywhere. Um, And then we have places like Louisville where we don't have enough shelter beds. Mm -hmm. We We have a lot of homeless shelters, but we're uh, severely lacking beds. Um, there's also a provision that really limits charitable bail funds. It says they can't post bail over five thousand dollars. That they can't post bail for people charged with certain offenses. And one of the big problems with this is the definition of charitable bail funds. It or charitable charitable bail organizations is really broad. That it could encompass like churches who. Raise money and want to post for someone mm-hmm. in the congregation. So that's problematic. And then the last one I'll mention is it expands shopkeepers' privilege, which allows like a store owner or an employee to detain someone they think is shoplifting. Um, but the way in which it expands it is, is it allows them to use force to do so and it, um, it makes them immune from criminal prosecution. So someone thinks you're shoplifting, they want to detain you by Um, assaulting you, you, they're not going to be charged. Um, And obviously this is likely to impact people of color who are likely to be racially profiled. Um, It could be incredibly problematic.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, we've, we've talked about this bill and its progression, but since we recorded our show last week, House Bill 5 passed the House with a floor amendment. And so what does the floor amendment do? Does it make things any better, any worse? Uh, What's your insight on that?
2: Yeah, so the floor amendment um, was filed by the bill's main sponsor, Representative Bowman, and it made two positive changes, but overall, it made the bill a lot worse. So the, the positive changes, it removed the possibility that someone who sells fentanyl to another person than overdoses from consuming it they removed it removes murder as a possibility um but they can still be charged with manslaughter in the first degree or manslaughter in the second degree so it's a small improvement mm-hmm. um, and then it carved out an exception for the street camping ban says hey you can sleep in your car for a period of 12 hours or less so long as that car is legally parked so that's a a small improvement yeah. um uh, and it's frustrating but i think that is directly from advocacy organizations that used examples of families across the state sleeping in their cars. Um, mm-hmm. And then what it made worse is it greatly expands the violent offender statute, um, which is already really broad. So it added multiple new offenses to it. It said that any attempt to commit a violent offense is now classified as a violent offense. Yeah, that's, and it, that's a huge
1: expansion.
2: Yes, And it also said um, that anyone charged with violent offenses, everybody, regardless, it could be a C felony, a D felony, doesn't matter. You're going to serve 85 percent of your sentence uh, before you can be eligible for parole. So that if that passed into law, Mm -hmm. that's a lot of people behind bars for a lot longer.
1: Yeah. Something I talk about on the show a lot is when we talk about violent, violent crime and violent offenses, what's actually included in the violent offender statute are a lot of crimes that like where people actually don't get hurt um, and things like that. So it actually ac- encompasses a lot of statutes that people wouldn't necessarily think about when they think of a violent crime. And especially in a, an attempt attempted crime um, just includes a lot more in that. And, and that statute is so harsh in terms of, Um, the penalties and having to serve 85% of your sentence. Um, So it it seems like some very small improvements for um, some much harsher penalties included in the amendment. So do you think that there's anything positive in this, what they're calling the safer Kentucky act Um, and, you know, What should a bill that's actually aimed at making Kentuckians safer look like?
2: Well, I think the only positive thing in the bill is um, a provision. I think it's at the end. It's about providing, expanding a program that provides IDs to people, uh, photo IDs Mm -hmm. or driver's licenses as they're released from incarceration. Right now that program runs in our 14 state prisons, but, this bill would expand it into all of our jails, which would be awesome. People need IDs. It helps connect them to services, um, helps them get jobs. um, But there's no appropriation for that in the bill. Um, Oh, okay. So without money to expand and run that program, it's likely that it's not going to happen. We need to pay people to do the job. We need the equipment. Um, So, yeah. Um, I think a bill to make Kentucky safer would look very different than this safer Kentucky act. Um, It would involve investing in things that we know reduce crime and keep people out of the system in the first place. So things like uh, high quality public education, affordable housing, housing first programs that say, Hey, we're going to get you into permanent housing and then we'll address your substance use disorder or your mental health issues or, or whatever, um, barriers people are facing and then also funding like community mental health centers properly and one like tangible improvement that could it could even happen this session is reforming the good samaritan law which says that if you call for help during an overdose you're not going to be charged with possession of a drug or drug paraphernalia um but there have been some problems in the application of this law mm-hmm. so i think if we reformed it expanded it Um, it would encourage more people to call for help and then we would be saving
0: people's lives. Yeah. Which was what we would like to do. Um, Seems like that's not what we're much in the business of doing these days, but uh yeah no that's a really good breakdown and thank you for that especially for how the floor amendment looks um because you know i i think a lot of people have been tracking this but as it typically happens with these big bills they sometimes change in big ways at the last second in ways that people don't realize and um you know it's headed to the senate it's likely to happen again a few times before we have a full bill who knows what this final product is going to look like and we'll have to be paying attention to what you tell us kaylee because uh it's probably going to change a few more times um, okay, so of course, HB5 is a big bill, omnibus bill, doing like several different things and several different statutes. Jasmine and I were talking about how hard it was to read because it's talking about one statute, then it talks about something else. And luckily, we've got pros like you that are taking on that job. Um, but you know, there are all kinds of other criminal justice bills that are going on uh, that are, they're, you know, being making their way through the legislature this session. So what else do you have your eye on? What are some other bills besides HB5, um, you know, good or bad um, that you think have a chance this year?
2: Well, just generally, we do track every criminal legal bill that comes in. Um, And at the end of the session, we'll produce a report that's like a a wrap up, hey, these are the bills that passed, and um, we'll be able to share that um, with the public. But some positive bills we're tracking, well, we are expecting for a clean slate bill to be filed within the next week or so. um, And that bill would automate the expungement process. So Research has shown that there are a lot of people in Kentucky that qualify for expungement already um, without expanding who's eligible that haven't taken advantage of that. And that's because it's expensive. Maybe they can't get to court or hire someone to do the the paperwork for them. So this bill would kind of automate that process. Once someone's eligible, um, the clerks would be able to process that without them even having to do anything. Um, And then also House Bill 157 is... Um, a bipartisan bill. It's related to um, interrogating kids, and it basically says that if you use any psychologically manipula- manipulative tactics, and there's examples in the bill that that any evidence obtained from that interrogation would be inadmissible in court. Ooh,
0: so
1: that bill could have helped me a lot. <laughs> yeah, <I know. laughs>
0: Um, yeah. So, th- there of course, there's some good stuff. We'll see where it goes. And, you know, um, I-, I do know that KY policy has done a lot to get good stuff through the legislature through adding it to other bills and doing a lot of educational work in that hard hard lobbying with, um, you know, all kinds of different folks in the legislature. So, um, you know, best of luck with all of that. But, you know, criminal justice isn't the only thing that KY policy talks about. I talked about it at the beginning. They started as the Kentucky Center for economic policy, uh, which, you know, obviously is a little restrictive in terms of what they talk about. They talk about all kinds of stuff. They're talking about healthcare, education, lots of other issues. Um, What are your colleagues looking at this year? Just in general, like what are some other issues um, that you think will make a big, uh, big splash this session besides the criminal justice stuff?
2: Well, it is a budget session, which people may or may not know happens every two years. So our tax and budget team and our economic security team, they're really focused on getting through a budget that delivers for the needs of Kentuckians. Um, We're in a really unique position this budget session with all the federal aid that came in during COVID that we have almost a $4 billion surplus sitting in our rainy day fund. And that hasn't been the case in years past. and $1.2 billion more will uh, be accrued this year. So we're encouraging or they're encouraging the General Assembly to invest that money um, because there are unmet needs in Kentucky. So specifically related to public education and childcare needs. Um, so that's that's a big main focus since it is a budget year.
1: Well, Kaylee, thank you so much for talking to us today. Before we let you go, how can people find your work and make their voice heard on um, some of these criminal justice policy issues?
2: Yeah, so we have a website um, called unlockky.org. And if you go to that website, you'll see all of our House Bill 5 materials, our analyses. We have a section by section breakdown for people who are interested in um, digging into the bill itself, as well as like um, talking points and a fact sheet. And we're going to keep updating that site as this bill moves through the process. So you can uh, you can know that when you go on there, it's you're going to be seeing the most updated version of whatever is moving in Frankfurt. And there is also a link there to an Action Network campaign where you just type your name and your address in. It'll populate who your legislators are. And you can send them a letter very easily saying, please vote no on House Bill 5. And you can use our template, you can change it, you can add your own words, um, but that's one really easy way to to stay involved.
0: All right. Well, Kaylee Raymer, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate having you on. Thank you all. Jasmine, how can people get a hold of us?
1: They can find us on Twitter and Instagram at myoldkypod. They can like our Facebook page and listen to our podcast on the podcast app of their choice. We also have a newsletter you can subscribe to at TinyLetter.com slash my old Kentucky newsletter. And you can support what we're doing on Patreon for as little as a dollar a month. You can do that at patreon.com slash my old Kentucky Podcast. And last but not least, we're part of the Ford Kentucky Network and the Demcast Network.
0: You crushed it. All right everybody, thank you for listening, and we will see you next week.